I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Nala Ayed. Welcome to the fifth and last of the 2022 CBC Massey Lectures, Laughing with the Trickster on Sex, Death and Accordions by the acclaimed Cree writer Thompson Highway. Indigenous mythologies, says Thompson Highway, provide unique, timeless solutions to our modern problems. Within the endless circle of life, the earth is a garden of joy, unlimited. And the reason for existence is to have a blast, to laugh ourselves silly. At the centre of that, in Indigenous mythology, is the figure of the trickster, zany, ridiculous and wise. A bit of a trickster himself. In his Massey Lectures, Thompson Highway leads us on an exhilarating exploration of five themes at the centre of the human condition. Language, creation, sex and gender, humour and death. Thompson Highway is a Cree author, playwright and musician. He wrote the plays The Res Sisters and Dry Lips Ought to Move to Kappa's Casing. The best-selling novel, Kiss of the Fur Queen, as well as children's books and a memoir, Permanent Astonishment. This year was the first since the pandemic that we were able to record the Massey Lectures on tour to Fredericton, St. John's, Saskatoon, Vancouver and Toronto. This is the last in the series, recorded at Kerner Hall in Toronto, and it's titled On Death. Here's Thompson Highland. All right, that's enough. <laughs> this is the fifth of uh, five lectures, the last of five lectures, and the subject is death, which, according to the tricksters' interpretation of the phenomenon, is not a tragedy, as you will see. At the front of the classroom stands Father Chipotat, our skinny-as-a-rail, red-haired, pot-bellied catechism teacher in his flowing black cassock, waving his wooden pointer this way and that to indicate God up in heaven with his cotton candy beard, his bulbous belly, and his golden scepter, a jagged thunderbolt that flashes and glints in a peerless sun. That's the image of God the Father that was drilled into me at the Guy Hill Indian Residential School where I spent nine years as a hard-working student. The priest's name was actually Thibodeau, but Chipotat was the closest we could get with our children's tongues that spoke Cree to begin with, not French, not English. Chipao means pointy in Cree, for the priest had a nose that looked like a stinger on a harnet, for instance. The second part of his name is derived from the verb imatat, the meaning of which you don't want to know. <laughs> Let's just put it this way and leave it at that. The English language won't let you go there. <laughs> it's too much fun. And this heaven teems with angels, Father Chibudad informs us with his raspy throat and darting utidani, that means tongue. 
servants of God, messengers, that kind of thing. These winged men are as numerous as the clouds and cowboy handsome, with long blonde hair and streamlined bodies as though they go to God's gymnasium to stretch their muscles on a basis semi-regular. <laughs> and cooks, asks Bobby Moose, a boy in my class, has a gumption to inquire. There are cleaners in heaven as well? Yes, says the priest, with a face as expressionless as mud, and he soldiers on with a lesson. In monotheism, when a person comes to the end of the straight line of the life as he has lived it for a length of time, whether that time be five or sixty or a hundred years, his spirit leaves his body and floats like vapor, or so it is said, to heights unheard of, at least by us mortals, still alive and breathing upon this planet. Once thus liberated, however, that spirit doesn't travel by itself. Whether the deceased has died in a car crash, or of cancer in a bed in a hospital room, or by drowning in a river, an angel, that is, a man with wings that rival in beauty the wings of swans, swoops down from the blue and wondrous sky yonder on the high where his car was hit, or at his bedside in downtown Toronto, as was the case with my late younger brother, or in the river where floats his body, to escort him to, well, that's the problem. For this spirit as vapor finds itself confronting three options and learns, moreover, that the choice is not his to make. Someone else decides. A deity, a god called Father. He will decide which route the recently deceased takes, which is the first step in the worrisome and frequently terrifying part of a journey that will take him to the end of time. Will he go to heaven? Or will he go to hell? Or will he go to a place in the middle called purgatory? In my child's dream world, the color white is omnipresent in this place called heaven. The clouds, clouds as far as a naked human eye can penetrate, as though seen from a plane. And the wings on angels who wear sheet white robes, all ankle length with full length sleeves, their skins, their complexions, all as white as five roses flower. Not a single one of them is black. It dawns on me. At least not in this chart that Father Chibudat shows us in his class. And no one is yellow. And no one is brown or red. Not like us Cree. The only ob objects that are not white in this heaven are the throne on which sits His Majesty, his aforementioned thunderbolt, and the harps, as Father Chibudat gamely explains the ornate instruments with strings the thinness of clotheslines, all of which are golden with hints of silver. Every angel holds one of these kito which is what we call musical instruments, and they pluck those strings, these men with wings, and make sweet music in 4-4 time, says to the red-haired priest, with a small pot belly that looks like a leopardson hidden under his cassock. <laughs> a leopardson, by the way, is a pudding that is boiled like in a bag, but looks like a fruitcake because of its raisins. Just so you know. And as with so many Cree words with French and English origins, it is a corruption of the French word for poutine, pronounced la poutine. <laughs> we don't want to go there. In this heaven, music in three, four times is forbidden. Too suggestive of a country waltz, says Father Chipotat, where people touch each other in unlikely places, whatever that means. And he sings hymns of glory, of love, of praise to Gichimanitu, as he calls our dear Ximantu. And smoking is forbidden as is drinking as is sex, I learned years later. 
And there is not a twitch of evil or sadness or depression or thoughts, suicidal or women for that matter, in that lofty environment, says the priest. In fact, only priests and bishops and popes who are all Catholic are allowed in. For there is room only for happiness and violet happiness, eternal happiness, impossible to crush or to annihilate. Father Chipotat says it is called in our language, the great sky. Whatever name this place called heaven has in whatever language, it is the first choice for those who have earned their right to enter it, where they will kneel at the right hand of this God, the Father, for eternity. That's a lot of kneeling, I've been thinking for years. I'm sure I will like this place. My poor little brother, who died at age 35 some 30 years ago, with his purity of spirit and his awesome humility, in spite of his jaw-dropping beauty, surely he has earned entry into the kingdom of God, even if he has to kneel for 10 million years. As have surely my mother and father, no one deserved entry to heaven more than they, except that my father was an accordionist, not a harpist, as I informed the priest in class that day. Will God let my father in, I ask? No, snaps Father Chipotat. Sorry, accordions are not allowed in heaven. <laughs> Distraught that my father might have to change instruments or go to hell, I vowed to help him keep his accordion. The second option offered to the recently deceased by this patriarchal God is a place called purgatory. The concept of purgatory has encountered controversy for several centuries. It has been canceled and it has been reinstated, then canceled again, then reinstated. It's all been a terrible wrangle among theologians, both Catholic and otherwise. When Protestantism first came to the fore in the 16th century, the new religion would have nothing to do with it, in part because Protestantism's wholesale rejection of all things Roman Catholic and the theory bit the dust. Whatever the dynamics of this theological earthquake, the original premise was that if you had been a man of seamless integrity, if you had led a life unmarked by vice, which is unlikely, for no one is perfect, not even the Pope. Mmm, you say. <laughs> Can I quote you on that? <laughs> but if you had, then your winged escort would take you in his arms and bear you straight to the air heights of heaven, where, seated on a throne and constructed out of gold, sits the monotheistic God, the Father. Those who hadn't led a perfect life, which is most, wouldn't be allowed entry into heaven, where the few perfect people went. But the sins of those many imperfect people hadn't been serious enough to send them to hell, which is the opposite of heaven, so they would be admitted into this sort of way station where they would cleanse themselves of whatever sins they had committed while still living. And the length of the time it took to do what that depended on the number of sins and their gravity. If you'd stolen $10 from the collection plate at church, it could be a month. If you'd killed a neighbor's dog, it could be a year. If you'd been a habitual liar, it could be a hundred. If you'd ruined somebody's career by slandering their name, it could be a thousand. Committing adultery, carrying out extortion, evading your taxes, they all counted against you. Still, you could undergo a process of penitence and be forgiven, eventually. That penitence? A string of Hail Marys as long as day recited on your knees until the creaked at which point you could continue on to heaven. There is, however, no physical description of existence anywhere of this fascinating place called Purgatory. As Father Chipotat once said from his pulpit one Sunday, it is not a place but a soul state, for a place with a physical description you must go to heaven or hell. But first, limbo. 
which is not a dance, but another soul state. <laughs> oh, it's somewhere out there, said Father Chipotat with a yawn that said, what do I care? It turned out that limbo was only for unbaptized babies, a place where they would not be in communion with God, but would nonetheless enjoy happiness eternal. But then Pope Benedict XVI canceled it in 2007. I have always imagined limbo as a giant hockey puck, black as slate, twirling through space with a million dead babies trapped inside it. <laughs> and now those babies are doomed to twirl through space forever. <laughs> and now to hell. If you, for example, killed your husband, or shot 20 people in a schoolyard massacre, or were responsible for the deaths of 10 million people in a war, then you, at the moment of death, were bound for hell. Whether your remains were lying in a bed at a hospital, burnt to a cinder in a terrible inferno, or crushed under a fridge, your spirit would be extracted from your heart by a devil, another man with wings, but this one red, not white. Handcuffed, shackled, and then dragged down a tunnel, kicking and screaming until the walls are ringing to a cave called hell. And those devils are the embodiment of evil. According to the map Father Chipotat showed us at the boarding school, these devils are stark naked, with skin redder than a Santa costume, with snake-like tails that writhe and coil and come to a fork at the tip and the horns and hooves of a goat, just like Pan, the Greek god of pleasure. These demons were once angels, part of the ranks that included luminaries such as the archangels Michael, Gabriel, and Raphael. They were disillusioned angels who made the mistake of following a leader, Lucifer by name, an angel himself, an arrogant incendiary who dared doubt God's peerless intelligence, claiming he was more deserving of the title King of Heaven than his father. For this heresy, Lucifer and his henchmen were thrown out of heaven. By the tens of thousands, they fell from the heights and plunged down to earth and beyond, down, down, and down until they reached its crust, where they have been living ever since in a cavern that is a noxious, belching, raging inferno. Flame and flame and yet more flame. And the king of hell, Lucifer himself, sometimes called Satan, sits on his throne at the center of it all, his scepter a trident, a three-pronged fork I have always been convinced he stole from Poseidon, Greek god of the sea. And from his elevated position, he oversees the torture of his trillions of victims, which, according to the vision of hell espoused by Father Chiputat, includes all those accordion players playing a joyful, jigging, chickaboom sort of music. Ah, yes, the music. Not just hymns to the glory of God in 4-4 time, but rhythm and blues, and jazz and rock and roll, blues, tunpan alley, stride, honky-tonk, salsa, samba, rumba, mambo, limbo, bingo, dingo, jingo, polka. They're all there. In 3-4 time, 6-8 time, 7-8 time, 3-8 time, 9-8 time. And the makers of that music are being pierced with tridents day after day after day and thrown like scraps of meat into a pile of burning, scorched bodies writhing in agony and screaming unthinkable, unprintable epithets. And smoking, drinking, and sex are not only allowed, but encouraged, as I will learn years later. <laughs> no other mythology has an uglier, more twisted, more perverted vision of the afterlife. It is guaranteed to terrify us all into submission here in this life, where we must suffer as much as we can. And you wonder why death in the monotheistic system is a terrifying prospect, a bone-crushing trauma. 
Chances are, Father Chipotad once intoned that an altar boy had been caught stealing sacramental wine. Chances are that you, Chagibot Custard, will go straight to hell upon your death and burn there forever. The boy's last name is actually Custer, not Custard. But that was the state of our English back then. And Father Chipotad tapped his pointer with glee at yet another charge sitting on an easel at the front of the classroom, this one depicting hell with Satan and its entire population of red-skinned people. Ten-year-old Chagiwat Custard, who wasn't very smart to begin with, trembled in his cassocks, scared to death of death until the day he, well, until the day he died. As for the Greeks, they believed that at the moment of death, the psyche or spirit of the dead left the body as a puff of wind. The deceased was then prepared for burial according to time-honored rituals. Ancient literary sources refer to the omission of burial rites as an insult to human dignity. Relatives of the recently deceased, primarily the women, conducted the rituals that customarily had three parts, the laying out of the body, the funeral procession, and the interment of either the body or cremated remains. After being washed and anointed with oil, the body was dressed and placed on a high bed inside the house. During the laying out, friends and relatives came to mourn and pay their respects. The body would then be brought to the cemetery in a ritual procession that usually took place just before dawn. Very few objects were placed in the grave, but monumental earth mounds, rectangular tombs, and elaborate marble monuments and statues were often erected to mark the grave and ensure that the deceased would not be forgotten. Immortality lay in the continued remembrance of the dead by the living. The women of classical Greece, for instance, would make regular visits to graves with offerings that included small cakes and libations. The most lavish funerary monuments were erected in the 6th century BCE by aristocratic families of Attica in private burial grounds along the roadside on the family estate or near Athens. Elaborate sculptures with epitaphs in verse marked many of these graves. If the monotheistic take on the afterlife depicts three possible destinations, heaven, hell, and purgatory, then its polytheistic equivalent depicts only one, known as Hades. In his epic poem, The Odyssey, Homer describes the underworld deep beneath the Earth's crust where the god Hades, the brother of Zeus, god of the sky, and Poseidon, god of the sea, reigns with his wife, Persephone. Over the crowds of countless drifting shadowy figures, the shades of all those who have died. Hades has been described as a limbo where time disappears and the dead fade into a kind of non-being. There is no punishment and therefore no suffering and no reward, but it is not a happy place. Indeed, the ghost of the hero Achilles told Odysseus he would rather be a poor serf on earth than lord of all the dead in the underworld. In polytheistic mythology, the soul of the dead, whether sinful or not, is met by a god at the bed in the hospital, in a crumpled car after the accident, in the river after the drowning, and that dead soul is escorted from the surface of the earth to the banks of a river called the Styx. There he must pay the ferry operator, an old man named Karen, a coin that the deceased's first of kin would have left under his tongue so that Karen would transport him across the water to the place called Hades. 
Finally, he enters the shadowy place where time is non-existent and where he will stay in a state of suspended animation for eternity. That escort God is Hermes. Hermes has many roles and wears many guises. Among his functions are messenger of the gods, protector of human health, patron saint of travelers, thieves, and merchants, god of boundaries, and mediator between the visible and the invisible, between the conscious and the unconscious, the bringer of dreams. He had shamanistic attributes, a kind of angel. He is usually portrayed as a fleet young man wearing winged sandals and a winged helmet and carrying a caduceus, a sort of wand or shepherd's staff with two mating snakes writhing around it, an ancient symbol for healing. Cunning, treacherous, and scheming, Hermes is the closest figure the ancient Greeks had to a trickster. Last, here is the indigenous take on what happens to the living at and after the moment of death. Always curious, the native trickster, Greece's Hermes, Rome's Mercury, decided he wanted to travel to the land of the dead to see what it was like. So he could ask his best friend, Eagle, to go with him. In the guise of the animal coyote, Trickster walked and ran while Eagle flew high above him. And as they traveled, they talked about life, about death, and about what happens when one dies. They journeyed up and down many rivers and across many lakes where Trickster had to swim. Their journey took them over hills and mountains, across many valleys and through one forest after another, and even on occasion, deserts. For the land they lived on was beautiful indeed, rich in landscape, rich in plant and animal life. So far did they travel, and for so many days and nights that Trickster would get tired, so tired that his friend, this magnificent bird with wings like sails, would have to carry him on his back. Eventually, they came upon an island where they heard people singing. This piqued their interest, so they swerved toward it. When they got closer, they realized the voices, which were human, were accompanied by a drum that sounded like a heartbeat. And these singers were enveloped by a mist that swirled and billowed, for night having fallen, it was dark. In some versions of the story, the lowly frog is suspended in the air, holding the moon to provide some light, beating all along with a drumstick. This is how Trickster and Eagle heard the dead sing and saw them dance, for it was they who were chanting, a pentatonic chant sung in unison in voices male and female and child, for there were many children among them. They were astonished to recognize, one after another after another, their ancestors who had died, going back generations, and it made them cry with an aching longing, for they wanted so dearly to stay there with them, but they couldn't. Something told them that they were not allowed, that they would have to leave by daybreak. Some even said that a certain energy pulled them away. Daybreak came, and night came to an end, and the mist swallowed dancer after dancer after dancer until all sign of life on that island disappeared. Weeping tears so copious that the level of the lakes and the rivers rose, or so it is said, Trickster had no choice but to leave with his dear friend Eagle and return to the land of the living. You're listening to the 2022 CBC Massey Lectures on Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia 
on ABC Radio National and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also hear us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. When faced with the complex moral questions the world tends to throw our way, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. My name is Waleed Ali. And I'm Scott Stevens. We're the hosts of The Minefield, an ABC Australia podcast. And each week we try to navigate the moral complexities of modern life in a way that's unexpected, unpredictable, intellectually serious, but more than a little fun. Along the way, we're joined by a range of philosophers and thinkers who promise to help you see the world and the challenges we face in a different light. You can listen to The Minefield wherever you get your podcasts. Thompson Highway's fifth and final Massey lecture is titled On Death. Christianity, he thinks, offers a dismal vision of the afterlife. The Greeks offered something a bit more positive. But in the indigenous view of our life after death, he says, when we die, we stay right here on earth. Quote, smack in the middle of that circle that is our garden, the one we were given the responsibility to care for when we came into this world as newborns. It's an uplifting and joyous conclusion to his series, a message that the worldview of Indigenous people suggests ways of seeing and believing that make our journey on Earth joyous, hilariously funny, and rich in diversity. Here's Thompson Highway with the final part of the fifth and last of the 2022 CBC Massey Lectures. In the pantheistic superstructure of indigenous mythology, when a person dies, he doesn't climb the straight line up to heaven or the one that leads down to hell. He doesn't even go to a place without time called Hades. Neither heaven nor hell nor Hades exists as a physical place in our collective subconscious our collective dream world. Quite by contrast, in the pantheistic system, heaven and hell and Hades exist right here on this earth, smack in the middle of that circle that is our garden, the one we were given the responsibility to take care for when we came into this world as newborns. When you die, your physical self, formerly animate, becomes inanimate and merely melts into the earth and becomes one with it, and it is the right word for the Cree noun for earth, aski, is inanimate. It is not ana aski, but anima aski. Even the earth by itself, that is, without its animate beings, humans, animals, plants, is soulless. Just like your head without your spirit to go with it, or your lung, or your stomach, or your heart. At the point of death, your physical self melts into the earth and over a lifetime of years and years becomes one with it. It becomes the earth and over a continuing timeline of years and years it gets transformed into flesh of plants, insects, animals, human beings, that is, other human beings, a new generation, your children, your children's children, your children's children's children which is how you find yourself again on the animate side of that same circle with the other living beings for a certain length of time. And thus the circle of life and death and rebirth and life and death and rebirth and life and death continue ad infinitum. If the straight line of the patriarchal God will eventually come to an end that is definite and it's only a matter of time, then the circle of his matriarchal equivalent doesn't. In terms mythological, when you die, 
Your spirit sheds its body and leaves that side of the circle where sits the animate beings, that is, the ones with living spirits, and ostensibly under the guidance of the clown called Trickster, crosses over to the other side of the circle to sit with inanimate beings, that is, the soulless ones, and simply goes on existing on another plane entirely, a plane that can be explained biologically, scientifically. But your spirit is still here on this planet. It hasn't left. It hasn't gone anywhere. There is nothing sentimental or delusional about it. Biology can prove it. The bodies of your mother or your grandfather or your daughter or your best friend who died last year have simply melted back into the soil and some five decades later or 10 or 30 or 100 come back to the land of the living as a blade of grass in a farmer's field, as the leaf shuddering on the branch of the maple tree in your front yard, as that ray of sunshine that drifts through your kitchen window and winds itself around your forearm as you're washing the dishes, as the wind that passes through your lungs to give your body marvelous movement. These are all your loved ones coming to bless you and tell you they love you. Thus, death in pantheistic superstructures is not a tragedy. It is not a traumatic event. It is not an ending. It is, rather, a beautiful passage, the most breathtaking passage you will ever take in what one hopes will be a long and happy life enriched by the laughter of a certain clown. This is true where native life is still at its most untouched, at its most pristine. In far subarctic Manitoba, where I grew up, out on the land, where it was paradise. Alone with my family amid the vista of 10,000 blue-watered lakes and endless forests and eskers and caribou that come thundering down from the high subarctic regions in high midwinter in herds of thousands, it was paradise. Eskers, by the way, are land formations made but the movement of glaciers as they were retreating to the Arctic at the end of the Ice Age, snaking their way northward as if giant moles had dug very long tunnels, there are ridges of sandy terrain that can be as high as 50 meters and as long as 300 kilometers. Golf courses floating in the clouds. They are breathtaking to look at. Paradise to hike on in summer. And paradise it still is. Still unseen, untouched by humans, except by us the Highway family, and Sundry Denny, our neighbors. Every element of life was ruled by the circle of nature. The ride was smooth. The ride was heavenly. The part that is more than a bit sentimental, some would even claim completely delusional, about this rosy vision of native life here in Canada is that the social reality of native people today doesn't reflect it. You take the native out of such an environment and you ask him for trouble. You plank them down in an urban environment where all is governed by the straight line. Sky-high towers, streets, machines such as cars, computers, and televisions. That's the result too frequently as not very healthy. Social breakdown on a massive scale, family breakdown, youth crime, alcohol abuse, cheap drugs, extreme poverty, all-out confusion, all-out unhappiness, despair, and suicide are all trials that bedevil the lives of downtown cores in cities the world over. Hell here on earth, they have been called. The reason for this state of affairs are legion, mainly indigenous collective racial memory of this catalog of misery, this collective crime of the dreaded human race, that part of it at least that fled the horrors of European history. American cowboys in the Wild West of the 19th century shot Indians as European settlers were moving west just to see how high their bodies would fly. 
colonizers infected us with smallpox blankets by the hundreds of thousands, millions of people, entire families lost their lives. Governments stole the most beautiful parts of our land, which is to say the richest and confined us to Indian reserves, almost always land that was worthless, untillable. A renaissance is supposed to mean a new modern way of thinking about the world and humanity's place in it, a way of thinking that replaces a backward old one. At that time of what is called the Italian Renaissance, from the 14th to the 17th centuries, the Catholic Church held debates about whether Native North Americans had souls. The brutal treatment of black people in the American South affected us. We fled by the thousands before they hung us too. The Catholic Church converted us by telling us that worshiping nature, worshiping a tree, was tantamount to devil worship. Spiritual extortion is what some call it. The church terrified us into submission by feeding our children horrifying images of a hell that did not exist. Sometime in the first half of the 20th century, the local missionary priest in Brochet, at the time Father Imshadik, once asked a denigal of not much more than 10 years of age, what is the most miraculous thing one can see in this life? The caribou, answered the girl. Arrogantly, the old priest chortled. No, my dear, no, it is the angels. In the guise of God's servant, he was telling a lie. She was telling the truth. This kind of subversion, this kind of brainwashing, nipped at the root of our spiritualism, our philosophical ideas, which is why they had to go underground and hide, simmering there for decades. What could have been if this worldview this ideology, this collective subconscious, this pantheistic indigenous mythology had been listened to, if it had been respected, and what if it's too late now? When I was growing up in the 1950s, northern Manitoba knew no forest fires. Two or three every summer, perhaps, and they were small and caused no great danger to the residents of those forests, including the animals. Even then, so vast is the land that we weren't even aware of those that happened. And there were very few people. A First Nation here with a population of 800 people. A First Nation there with a population of 1,000 people. The two so far apart at a time when travel was limited to canoe and dog sled and the occasional bush plane. They might as well have been the only settlements on Earth, which means emergency evacuations of entire communities by bush plane with pontoons was unknown. There weren't any. But now there are dozens upon dozens. Every summer, the north is besieged with one forest fire after another. It is no longer safe for people or animals to live there. And not just in Manitoba, but in Saskatchewan, Ontario, Alberta, and British Columbia. Emergency airlifts of entire villages, entire towns are par for the course now. From April the 1st to September the 30th, 2021, for instance, 1,610 wildfires burned 868,203 hectares of land in British Columbia alone. Towns like Lytton were burnt to the ground. People lost their houses. People lost everything. Kelowna, B.C., Lesser Slave Lake, Alberta, Leaf Rapids, Manitoba, all of California, all of Australia. The list grows longer as these forest fires transpire with increasing regularity and size with every passing summer. And then there are the floods. And the summers that get hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter. What can we do before it's too late? before the climate change devours the planet with fire or water within one summer. My partner and I live in the Aylmer sector of Gatineau, right across the river from Ottawa. Until 2001, 
Elmer was its own principality, separated from the main part of Gatineau, which used to be called Hull, by some 10 kilometers of maple forests, the Ottawa River, and to die for bicycle paths. The pocket of Elmer, where our house is located, is called Witchwood. A riverside quarter was cut off from the rest of Elmer by a major thoroughfare. It retains the feel of a country village whose history dates back to the 19th century. It feels very period, very colonial Quebec. In fact, it once was cottage country for the well-heeled of Ottawa. You can tell that every second house was a former cottage that's been spruced up to meet with modern standards of living. The telltale sign, they have no basements. A five-minute walk from our house and you're on the river, which widens at this point out to a great big lake. Almost every street that runs perpendicular to that river, or rather that lake, thus ends its journey at Le Lac de Chine, the Lac of the Oaks. The result? Tiny little beaches, though not with sand but with stones or rocks the size of baseballs, line that shoreline. And since the neighborhood is a clutter with civic-minded people of a certain age, which would, in effect, is a retirement community, mindful residents have left Adirondack chairs and other kinds of patio furniture at irregular intervals all along the shore. It's bliss when you sit there with a chilled beer on a summer evening, listening to the river flowing by, sometimes with your feet right there in the water. Our grandchildren, who live with their parents some 12 blocks east of us, love to play here whenever they're over. They love picking up stones and throwing them into the river to see how many times they will bounce before they sink. They love watching the rows of little baby ducks following their mothers. They love talking to the geese and munching on picnics under the maple trees, which here are lush. We live embraced. We live loved by nature. And in winter, there are homemade rinks and river ice, far as the eye can see, going east and west, where kids of all ages play ice hockey. People of all ages drag their huts out to engage in ice fishing, and figure skaters do their toe jumps, their flips, their salchos, their lutzes, their triple axles, sometimes right in front of people's living room windows, a private show for the lucky. And the air, all the way from the Arctic Ocean, 2,000 kilometers of land uninterrupted by development, fills your lungs to the point where of bursting so that the very act of breathing is actually a singing, a singing to the land that gave you this gift, and your spirit floats. But the river has its moods. It has its tempers. It has been known, for instance, to overflow its banks come spring thaw, where the winter ha has produced more snow than expected, which would, has been flooded on many occasions. Houses have been damaged, and some people have been left homeless. It is only a matter of time before the floods go haywire and wipe out entire cities and kill thousands. And if the rivers and the lakes don't do that, then the forest fires will. We here at Witchwood live a mere five-minute drive going inland from the entrance to one of the most beautiful national parks in Canada, a maple forest of most extraordinary beauty with hiking and bicycle and ski trails winding through it. Gatineau Park is a national treasure. But when will it burst into flame because of extreme heat precipitated by climate change, leaving us nothing but charred remains? I sit on my Adirondack chair in the heat of the summer and watch my grandchildren gambling in the waters of the winding, murmuring river. They'll be fine, I think, but will their children? The Ottawa River is already radioactive. It's already very sick. My grandchildren are eight and nine, I just turned 70. For the sake of future generations, will we let the patriarchal god of monotheism continue destroying the planet with his straight line of aggression? Or will we let his wife 
the mother earth of indigenous pantheism, preserve it for her children, for our grandchildren and great-grandchildren, with her womb, with her great never-ending circle. When my little brother René went away, and went away is what happened, for to me he did not die, and he most certainly did not go to hell. I went to the hospital every day for the last two weeks of his life, for he faded very slowly, day by day. Movement by movement, faculty by faculty, organ by organ, nerve by nerve, they all stopped functioning until all that was left moving was his heart. And I'd sleep there in his hospital room, sometimes under his bed. Yes, on a hard, cold linoleum with no sheets, no blanket, and sometimes right there on the bed beside him, my, my arms wrapped around him, his sheets entangled around me. And I'd drift off. And in that space between sleep and awakeness, the dreams would drift in and out of me as if the current of a river was passing through me, my bloodstream mixed in with its liquid. We are paddling in a sleek blue canoe, my younger brother and I, the way we used to as children, I at the stern, he at the bow, and we are paddling and paddling to the heart of the night, this thick mist swirling around us, heading for an island in the distance. The only sound is the rippling of water stirred by paddles, until as we approach the shroud-enveloped island, we hear singing, steady, pentatonic, almost like a Goyan chant. Men and women, and children too, are singing and they are accompanied by the beating of a drum, its rhythm as regular as the beating of a human heart. It is the dead who are singing. It is our ancestors going back generation after generation, for we, as the mist gives way, recognize them one after another after another. Our four sisters and one brother who left us as children, our parents, our father's parents, our mother's parents, our father's grandparents, our mother's grandparents, our laughing Aunt Margaret, our elegant Aunt Adela, our movie star handsome Uncle William, cousins, cousins, and yet more cousins, friends, friends, and yet more friends. And they are dancing. We can see them clearly now, if still at a distance. They are dancing in a slow and rhythmic circle. We arrive at the shore of the island. We beach the canoe. My brother disembarks, and I am about to follow him, for I want with all my heart to go with him. Without speaking, he turns to face me, and with one hand raised, motions me to stop. So I sit there, frozen. With the hint of a smile curling his lip, he pushes the canoe from the shore, this sandy bar, and it begins drifting away. My heart cries out, but it makes no noise. I drift off further and further and further and further. He is still standing on the shore, gently waving and gently smiling. He's looking at me, the last I will see of the glimmer in his eyes. And as he turns to join the ancestors in their dance of life everlasting, the swirling fog swallows his figure, and I am left alone inside that boat, drifting and drifting and drifting, and weeping and weeping and weeping, the silence now total, except for the rippling of water as coaxed by the movement of a swirling paddle. Away up overhead, an eagle glides a graceful curve and guides me into the breaking light of day and home. I wake up in my brother's bed on the fifth floor of the Toronto Western Hospital with my face and the pillow that we share drenched with tears. At 17 days short of 36, 
My younger brother, the achingly beautiful modern dancer Renee Highway, is still alive, if only barely. But I know, inside my heart, inside my blood, that he is on his way to the island of the dead and be gone within two weeks. I am nowhere near as beautiful as my younger brother. May he rest in peace. But then, who could be? He passed into the spirit world at 36 of age. I don't miss him. He lives still with me every moment of my life. He brings me joy. I have, after all, his fulsome lips. I have his voice. I have his body. Yes, I once, at age 18, had the body of a ballet dancer. We all did. Seven surviving children and two parents. Joe Highway, athlete supreme, passed on to us most excellent genes. My younger brother's last words to me before he slid into unconsciousness for his last two weeks on earth were, don't mourn me, be joyful. So my job is to be joyful, not for one person, not for myself, but for two people, him and me, which is why you will always see me having twice as good a time as everyone in any given room (laughs) at any given time. I have no time for tears. I am too busy being joyful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Merci. Merci beaucoup. Which means I thank you very much in the plural. I not only do I have dry lips, I have dry throat. <laughs> so I should move to campus casing, shouldn't I? As quickly as possible. Oh, yes, questions, please. Nala? Thank you for uh, a just, I don't even know what the adjective is, but a profoundly wonderful speech. Thank you. Um, Thank you. I believe we have our first question right here. Okay, please yes, please. Hello. Uh, thank you for the beautiful lecture and the laughter. Mm-hmm. Um, you shared when dealing with death on a personal level, like death of a loved one, Mm -hmm. that rather than a tragedy, it is a beautiful transition and a return to nature. Mm -hmm. Um, But you also spoke about death kind of widespread, whether um, it's the tragedies of smallpox spreading or climate change Mm -hmm. and loss of life to flood or fire. Um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on Lessons we can learn from Trickster when facing death like that comes from climate change and where humor and pleasure can kind of come into play um, or what we can learn from Trickster when dealing with things that can feel quite heavy and urgent. Mm. Great question. That's a very, that'd be very difficult for me to answer. Well, of course you can't. Tragedy is an inevitable part of the human, the human circle of life. <clears throat> we, all, we all witness it at some point. You have to, otherwise you wouldn't be human, you know? Uh, and so, uh, yes, you cry. You, when my father died, I cried for four days and four nights. The wake was four days, four nights. I slept one hour a night, cried for four nights. I think I might have filled a bathtub with tears that time. And uh, so you cry, you go take yourself through that journey. And when you find out, but ultimately when you really think of it, the tears, the tears of sorrow are not that much different from the tears of laughter. So you go, it's one extreme to the other. Extreme humor, extreme sadness. There's two sides of the same coin, in my opinion. So you just let yourself cry, of course. And the, but you know that the laughter will bring you out every time. And if it doesn't, then you're probably dead. 
If you didn't laugh at all today, if you didn't die, laugh all month, you would be so depressed by the end of that period that you would probably end up killing yourself. And the next morning, you would be dead, and it's as brief as that. That's my point. You have to laugh in order to survive. Thank you, Thank you. for that no. question. Thank you. You have okay, to laugh in order to survive. Remember that. Please, ah, there's another I'll, one over, over there. there. Yes, go ahead. Thank you very much for your beautiful words. And I just wondered, who would you say would be the trickster in Christianity? Well, that's, that, that, you have to read the book for that, okay? <laughs> that's, why, that's, why I, that's why I wrote the book. You have to, it, it, it addresses itself in the, in, the, in, the, in the chapter that talks about the hero figure. What is a hero figure? A hero figure in the, most classical, in the classical sense is a being who is half man and half God. So you know who that is in Christian mythology. And my complaint with him in the book, and it says that very clearly in the book, our, our trickster laughs all the time. I've read that book from cover to cover several times, and at least two languages, and I've yet to... He's a wonderful man. I love him very, very much, but I've never heard him laugh. He's not a, laugh, a, laughing, a laughing deity he was not. And I've never heard the Christian God laugh either. And that's my point. There's something missing there. And it, it packs a punch, that question, so that's why you have to read the book for in order to feel the full impact of that punch. Thank you. Okay, but thank you for the question. Thank you. Thank yes. you for that question. On the right, please. Thank you very much, uh, for your, especially for your description of, of your experience with Rene in, mm -hmm. his, in his last couple of weeks. I have a difficult question for you. Um, I, I read your book, uh, uh, Permanent Astonishment, and I really liked it. But I was struck by the difference in your experience of... of uh, residential schools and so many people who testified in the in the the commission about 15 years ago to what do you attribute your i don't know if it was a positive experience of of residential schools or you just came out of it with such a positive um uh, joyful uh, life after that okay there's one thing that's very difficult to say because it's tricky uh, and that is that, just remember, when you, there are always three sides to a story. There's your side of the story, there's my side of the story, and then there's the truth. It's a very hard point for me to talk, to talk about because I, my, my experience in the residential school system was very positive. For me, it was a high-level Jesuit school that, that the teachers were extraordinary. The, uh, look at the result. Let's put it that way. Okay? That, Without saying a word about it, just look at the result. The, the, the result is obvious. It speaks for itself. There are very many few concert pianists that have come out of Rosedale, and they, lived, they grew up with their grand pianos in their living rooms. I grew up in a tent where the nearest pian grand piano was a thousand kilometers away, and yet I learned how to play it. I just worked hard, and I had extraordinary parents and an extraordinary sense of humor and extraordinary friends every step of the way who loved me very, very much. Many of them, Munias. <laughs> like yourself, you're a Munias, aren't you? I can hardly see you because I'm not wearing my glasses for a reason. <laughs> anyway, um, it's, uh, it's just been a fabulous journey. I've loved every second of it, and, uh, and, I'm, and I still find myself absolutely drowning in Munias love. 
the dreaded Bouyas is always around somewhere. No, that's our nickname for white people. <laughs> Whom I love. We, unless there are any other questions, I've got a question for you. Okay. It's something, it's a question that you posed in, in the voice of another in the lecture that you gave. Yeah? And the question was, what is the most miraculous thing that we see in this life? Oh, of course. Ah, oh, boy. <laughs> well, it's, uh, okay, you know what? I don't know if I've seen it. I've heard it. Uh, and I like to hear it every day. I don't, it's not a favorite vision that I, that I deal with. It's, it's a favorite sound. And that sound is human laughter. It's my favorite sound in the world because I find that human people laughing are at their most beautiful when they laugh, when their teeth are exposed, <laughs> like, a, like a snarl, you know? That kind of laughter, like hysterical, un unbuttoned laughter. And laughter is humanity at its most beautiful. And that's why I love it so much. And that's why I'll do anything, anything, even making me fool myself into what? 10,000 people, which I've done. Not 10,000, but five, maybe. I will, uh, I will make a fool of myself in front of 5,000 people just to hear that laughter. That's, I'm addicted to it. Yeah. I'm addicted to life. That's my problem. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Thompson Highway. to On Death, the fifth and last of the 2022 CBC Massey Lectures, Laughing with the Trickster, on Sex, Death and Accordions by Thompson Highway. Our thanks to the many people who helped make this tour possible, to the staff at CBC local stations, to the people Thompson had recorded conversations with, and special thanks to Janelle Duval in St. John's and Heather Morrison in Saskatoon. The entire lecture series will be available on our website, cbc.ca slash masseys. You can also download the podcasts from our podcast page. Your local bookseller will have the book version of the lectures, Laughing with the Trickster on Sex, Death and Accordions, published by House of Anansi Press. That music you're listening to, by the way, is written by Thompson Highway. It's from his latest album, Cree Country which, as the title suggests, is a collection of country music-styled songs sung in Cree by Patricia Cano. And now that you've been listening to the lectures, we'll be creating a special program to run with the rebroadcast of the series in the spring. I'll be talking with Thompson, and we'll be discussing some of the questions you send us. So send your questions to masseyquestions at cbc.ca. That's masseyquestions at cbc.ca. Our partners in the Massey Lecture Series are Massey College at the University of Toronto and House of Anansi Press. The Massey Lecture Series is produced by Philip Coulter. Online production by Althea Madison, Ben Shannon, Sinisha Jolich, and Paul Gorbold. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Our senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of the Massey Lectures and Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayad.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.